basically the pandemic kicked off. We had two kids in our two bedroom apartment. We were feeling super cooped up. And the only thing that made either of us feel sane all day is cooking. It's cool because like with kids, like they are naturally interested in food. Like they're putting everything in their mouths. But like when I make something with my daughter, like she doesn't make the bread. But I tell her at the end, I give her some of the bread. Like, you know, you made this. This is Sophie made this. And she just and she'll go around and tell people like Sophie and Papa made this bread. And like and it's and it's you just see a little thing where they start to like something starts to like click in their head and it's really cool. And so that that especially in the really dark parts of COVID was kind of a lifesaver. And my wife and I, we would switch on and off who got to make dinner each day. And it wasn't and it used to be like, oh, uh, can you make dinner? Can you? And this one was like, I want it today. I need this. Welcome to yet another episode of Amuse Bouche, a palate cleanser in the form of a podcast. I'm your host, Kehlani Palmasano, and today's episode features writer and author Matt Hirschberger. Our conversation started out as a discussion about food and mental health. A few years ago, Matt was experiencing depression. He was new to New Jersey, a long way away from his hometown of Cincinnati, and he felt disconnected from this new community that he was part of. On top of that, anxieties around climate change and the feeling of hopelessness to make any meaningful changes on that front exasperated his depression. Over time, though, Matt found that cooking, doing things like making bread and perfecting his pasta sauce and making pesto with his children, really helped alleviate his symptoms. But our discussion took this delightful detour and became more about the importance of connections, connecting with your community, connecting with nature, and connecting with your family, and how making these connections can make a really big impact on our own lives as well as the world around us. And what better way to make connections than through food? I know it sounds corny, but it's totally true. This was such a fun conversation to have, so I really hope you enjoy. Matt Hirschberger is a deep thinker. You have to be when you're a writer, librarian, and teacher. Based out of New Jersey, Matt is a stay-at-home dad who is working on two books, one of which is a manual for how to survive what feels like the end of the world. The guide, tentatively titled What to Expect When You're Expecting the Apocalypse, is an introspective look into how to live a productive and healthy life when the world is essentially a hot mess. Though Matt writes a lot about socioeconomics and political science, his work oftentimes intersects with food, particularly when food can cross over with mental health. He's written a few pieces for USA Today and has his own experiences with depression and how cooking has been one of the things that really helps when he feels like he's in a slump. Matt, let's begin at the beginning. And, you know, what was the moment you noticed that cooking was helping you alleviate your depression? Uh, it was it was pretty immediate, uh, you know, because once you get your diagnosis of depression and you go into therapy, they start they, like they sit down with you and they start saying like, OK, what are the root causes of this? And, you know, that changes from person to person, uh, you know, and, and just as a disclaimer, my depression is very different from everyone else's depression. Uh, there's a lot of things that can contribute to it. Like, um, you know, you could be dealing with like bipolar, you could be dealing with postpartum, you could have trauma that have happened, you could have uh, be dealing with grief, um, or addiction, or any of these other things. And I was fairly lucky in that the stuff that was really kind of causing depression for me was 
more or less environmental. So I had like some level of control over all of these different factors. And cooking was kind of a thing that I just did. And I started to kind of like pick up that I felt better after I cooked something. And I've, I've developed like theories for like what this, why this was the case. But, uh, you know, at, at its most basic is it's just a little bit of self-esteem um, because cooking's pretty, it's, it's fairly easy. And only, you know, you can do something in, in the course of like 10 minutes, you can like throw something quick together and it can still come out really delicious if you just have the right ingredients and basically know what you're doing. And when you're in kind of the worst part of a depression, self-esteem is really hard to come by. And, you know, a, a part of what kind of kicked off depression for me is I had always lived in cities and I moved to New Jersey with my wife, who's from here. Uh, I ended up on the Jersey Shore in a in kind of a more suburban setting. I was working from home. I wasn't really like going out and doing anything. I didn't know anyone in the area. Um, and I was like, uh, yeah, it was just I was kind of like disconnected from everything. I also wasn't like exercising. I probably was drinking a little bit more than I should have. And I just felt terrible about myself all of the time. And then I'd make some dinner and my wife would come home. She'd be like, Oh my God, this is delicious. And that was kind of like the one time of the day where I was like, maybe I'm not completely useless. And so from there, like I started to realize that there are a bunch of other things that like cooking does that actually really are effective for dealing with, with mental health issues. Um, you know, the, the other big one is that uh, cooking is a natural um, – there's something in psychology they call a peak experience or a flow state. Um, and that's when you are so absorbed in the activity that you're doing that your mind is – like everything else just falls away. And they've, they've done like all this research on it. And people who report really high levels of happiness are people who are able to get into that flow state really regularly. And the key to it is that you have to be working on something that is challenging enough where – you have to give it your full attention, but it's not so challenging that you get frustrated. And cooking's great because it requires your attention because you're dealing with edge weapons and fire. Um, but, you know, you can also like change the level of difficulty with anything. So you can make something with like three ingredients and, you know, it'll require your attention, but then, you know, it comes out and it's delicious and people say, hey, this is great. I, I definitely so. see what you mean. I know sometimes I can feel overwhelmed and even the most simplest task can seem like it takes a lot but really like all tasks are just a bunch of tiny tasks strung together and that's kind of what cooking is so sometimes i'll look at my fridge and there's tons of ingredients and there's tons of things to look you know to use uh but i'm looking at way too many options and so sometimes it's like oh just picking a thing and then following the step by step it's it feels like progress when you feel like you're in a slump and you're not moving forward at all. Like cooking can feel as though you're moving forward step by step. And then at the end, you have something that's very satisfying and super, you know, yeah, feels it feels good. It feels good cooking. I, I can see where you're coming from. Yeah. And, and you know, the, the other big thing is like, so the, the thing that happened that really got me cooking regularly was right when me and my wife moved in together, it was before we got married, I went to the grocery and I came home with like a can of Prego. Um, and I was like, oh, we're going to have pasta. And she just like took this deep breath and she just said, 
as long as you live with me, this will never be in our house. The, and, like the, specifically the jar yeah, of Prego? Just a canned tomato sauce. She's a good <laughs> New Jersey Italian girl. Oh, true. And she was like, you make it from scratch. And she taught me how to do it. And it's like three ingredients. And it takes about as much time as it takes to open up a can of Prego and to like dump it into a, into a pot. And when you make something that you've always had like prepackaged from scratch and realize how much better it is and how much and how easy it is to do it, then, you know, you just start like seeking out stuff like that. So I'd start like making like homemade hummus. I'd start making, you know, I started bread, you know, like all of those things are incredibly easy to do. And it just kind of is a little bit of a, it's a little bit of a boost uh, for your, you know, for your, for your ego. And also to just give you something sensory that gets you out of your head because, you know, with depression, you're just lost in this fog. It a lot can of the feel, time. It, it feels intentional too. And maybe there is something to that intentional action. Um, that feels very satisfying and also like you're in control because sometimes you the, it, the the world is very overwhelming there's a lot of things that we don't feel like we're in control of but cooking when you're selecting the ingredients everything from going to the grocery store and picking out the perfect tomatoes to going home and laying out the ingredients and then intentionally measuring everything to your specific taste. Uh, do you think that there is something to that um, in your experience? Yeah. I mean, I think that what, you know, I mean, there's just so many different things that kind of played into my depression and food was this weird intersection of all of them. And, you know, like, so I, I had a, one of the major factors was I had like this fairly intense uh, anxiety about the future and um, and also this just total disconnection from from New Jersey. It just for me, it was just this weird place that I didn't get. And so food was something that was like I could actually start interacting with New Jersey a little bit through its food. Like, you know, and you, you can do that by going to restaurants, going to like New Jersey diners and things like that, but also eating like local vegetables and like trying to seek out stuff that's like super fresh and didn't doesn't have too much of like a carbon impact because like climate change is this big thing that like kind of played into all of my anxieties. Yeah. And, you know, so like starting to like focus on like really local food and like really local ingredients. And it just became a way to kind of like interact with the state in a way that I really didn't feel like I could with like the rest of my time. Let's, let's go, let's track it back a little bit to the climate change. You know, you've got the book that you're working on, what to expect when expecting the apocalypse, which does kind of feel a lot like, you know, the impact of climate change on so many factors uh, of our lives. Um, tell me a little bit more about how cooking kind of tied into alleviating that anxiety over climate change. A major factor in my depression was the fact that like I started to have this intense anxiety about my future and also the future of like my kids. Cause I've got two small ones, three and one. And you know, when you start to like really look into climate change, the sheer scale of it is enormous. And uh, with a lot of people who are active in this cause, uh, eco-anxiety and despair are just a huge problem. We have a, uh, in a nearby town, we have a um, eco-anxiety support group, um, but a lot of like kind of the Sunrise Movement, um, Extinction Rebellion, Greta Thunberg types are dealing with like serious anxiety and depression. And it's just because the problem seems just so big and a lot of the political actions that you can take to try and address it don't seem big enough and don't seem to be moving at the pace that you would think that they'd need to. And so for me, um, I kind of, you know, was feeling a lot of despair around like, and, you know, and 
I was going through a lot of this during a presidency when climate change was just denied. And it seems like, oh, oh yeah, God, we're just going to everything's going to fall apart. And then um, I started focusing more on the local level and really on things that I could do for my community because I can't save the world. And I really can't get much done politically on the national level. But, you know, I live in a fairly small town and I actually can start doing things to start making our community specifically a little bit more sustainable and a little bit more resilient. And food is at the core of all of that. So like, you know, one of the, you know, the activism that's kind of like helped me find a little bit of purpose and meaning in a world with climate change has been like, you know, trying to get a seed library started in our town, um, you know, which COVID actually really helped out with because everyone suddenly got very into victory gardens. Yes. Um, yes, they did. Yeah. I did too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's great. And you, and, and once you've like grown your own food and you make your, like make pesto from basil that you've grown, like, Oh, it's so satisfying. Room. Again, like the, uh, the progression of like, you planted this thing from seed, you nurtured it, it grew, and then you consumed it. It feels very sustainable. It's it feels like a system that you're in control of. And it kind of falls in line with that, um, you know, like being able food sovereignty, that you're mm -hmm. in control of where your food is kind of where it's coming from. And it's coming from you and your hard labor. Yeah. Yeah. And that's and that's something that like everyone can do to some extent. And, and even just doing like a small herb or vegetable garden in your backyard helps take some of the pressure off of the food system. It helps you kind of like learn pretty vital tools. Um, and so it's, it's a form of activism that everyone can do. And, and people don't think of gardening as activism, but it really is like, you know, getting to know what can grow locally is that's something because of, you know, if, if you start paying attention to like the plants that are out there and start knowing, like, you know, seeing what's growing in your area, you realize like a lot of the plants that we have everywhere are not designed to be in for, for, you know, in my instance, New Jersey. And when you start to pay attention to what actually is local and what's actually invasive and is probably damaging to, to kind of like your local ecosystem, then you're already going a pretty far way in recognizing how you can fix things. Like, um, you know, there's there's a thing called Gardens for Wildlife, which does like certifications to see if your garden has enough like local stuff, if it, uh, you know, helps support local birds or local bugs. Oh, wow. That's um, interesting. Yeah. And, and, you know, like the the, uh, the other thing that I kind of got into and I haven't done much of it because it is in a fairly literal sense illegal um, is guerrilla gardening, which is, Wait, you know, where <laughs> have you not heard of this? No. What is guerrilla <laughs> gardening? Is it like kind of like guerrilla marketing? Like what? Yeah. So basically you have pieces of land that are neglected and they might just be overgrown. And what guerrilla gardeners do is they reclaim that land by planting specific things in like an empty lot or, or in, you could do it in a public space, but the, the main point of it is to take neglected areas and to put something in it that could, um, you know, help the local ecosystem. So like the easiest thing you can do is like, I'm, you know, in New Jersey, we're right in the path of the monarch butterfly. Yes. And monarch butterflies can only like grow on milkweed. And so you can, milkweed is very easy. You put a little bit of seeds into a piece of clay and you toss it somewhere and then it waits out the winter. And then when the clay breaks down, the seeds plant and they grow and then butterflies can live there. And so you, they're called seed bombs and you just Get them into little balls and you just toss them into lots as you pass by them. And so, you know, that's something that you can do to like help really support your local e ecosystem because, you know, monarch butterflies are also pollinators. Um, they also help local crops. And 
you know, there's another, apparently pumpkin seeds grow very easily. So you can just walk around with a bag full of pumpkin seeds and find a little piece of dirt and just push them down in it with your thumb. And then in a few months, pumpkins are going to be coming out of there. Oh, wow. And, you know, so that's something for like local foragers to then take advantage of. And even if you don't have a yard, even if you don't have property that is yours, you can still kind of use urban suburban landscapes to grow food for you or for anyone else that might come across it. Oh, definitely. And in terms of like the abandoned lots, I know that there was a situation in New Jersey when I was a kid growing up of, like you were saying, the invasive species, which a lot of them are decorative plants. Like we're not necessarily supposed to have butterfly bushes, even though they attract a lot of beautiful things. It's not indigenous to New Jersey soils. Um, that same with like some types of decorative grass. I know there was a situation with uh, ha- old houses and whether they were like old houses, but also abandoned plots of land where houses used to be, where there was a situation where all of this decorative grass was growing and it was trapping the box turtles. Um, or like, yeah, the painted turtles and the box turtles that we have in New Jersey and they would get stuck in the grass, like they would try to go from marshland to marshland and they'd get stuck in the grass and sadly die. So there's, you know, there's, it does impact our ecosystem and this concept of, uh, gorilla gardening Mm -hmm. is absolutely, you know, absolutely cool and such a great way to connect with New Jersey as well. Um, tell me a little bit more about the seed garden or the, the seed library that you started at the library that you work at. How's it been going? How, what's the response like and what kind of seeds do you have on hand? You know, it starts, it starts really small and we've talked to a bunch of other libraries that have done something similar. And so we basically just solicited donations from local gardeners. Uh, we didn't even start sending out um, like to local seed companies because like, you know, a lot of like Burpee will send packets of seeds. Like some companies, some nurseries will just send you like excess seeds. There have not been a lot of excess seeds. Yeah. Lately, um, because it's just everyone wants to plant a garden now. Oh, it's yeah. But there was like a crazy run on seeds last year where it took months for people to get their seeds in, which is silly because there's a lot of gardening centers that will actually give you seedlings and little saplings, mm-hmm. so you can always you know support your local garden center. Yeah, and and, and that's and it is. It, I mean, honestly, it's it's really it's it's a pain for people who are gardeners, but it's actually very good news that so many people are interested in doing this type of gardening, and especially growing like food. And the things that we're cur- encouraging are like uh, local heirloom plants, uh, that are, you know, heirloom um, vegetables, so that it's actually like local strains that we can help kind of support. Um, we're hoping to get more gardens. We have like I, I'm literally the the window right behind me right now looks out on a. Um, uh, food kitchen. Um, and they just put in a whole row of gardens and they're actually starting to grow their own food for the people that are coming in, like, you know, who are uh, having issues with like hunger or access to food. And so like having more and more stuff growing in your community really means that, you know, you're not only you've got like the, the kind of cool feeling of being outside, which is actually a proven mental health booster is to like be outside and being like, you know, just doing something in nature. But you also start having like less hunger issues. You start having more community resilience. You start having like food sovereignty. You start having these things where people can start to like really help themselves rather than just like kind of wait for some, for a government to decide that they're worthy of getting food. Yeah. And so like, it's, you know, you can start to like encourage people to like kind of empower themselves through those things. And that, that has 
for me in particular, has been really meaningful. It is still very early in our first season. So we haven't even put out our seat library yet. We're still trying to get like some of the legal stuff in order because you, you know, there's, there's stuff you have to, there are boxes you have to check when you're making a seat library, but um, we're just going to, it's basically, you're just giving out free seats and anyone can come and take, we have like a limited amount, but like, we're not, we're not even checking it out. Um, it's just like, come and take the seeds that you want. And please, if you would try and collect some at the end of the year and bring them back to us. And then over time, we're going to try and build that out to be as big of a, a seed library as possible. Uh, it's a little difficult right now because we are not physically open as a library because of COVID. Right. Um, yeah. But, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's been cool and there has been a pretty good response. It, it is still, you know, something like this just takes a long time to kind of grow. And everyone we've talked to and, and the other libraries has said pretty much the same thing. I mean, it, it, does, it does take time. Yeah. Um, are you getting a lot of plants that have kind of a history with New Jersey, things that are indigenous to our region? Yeah, there's, there's been some of the majority of it is food. It's, you know, like um, we, it, you know. Oh, not so We've much decorative s- plants, but like, oh, squash, yeah. beans, like yeah. corn. The the big one is that everyone wants peppers. Everyone wants hot peppers. And so like we've got a lot of people like I just it's like, yeah, I grow habaneros in my bag. It's like, sure, we'll take habaneros. But like obviously habaneros are not, you know, uh, local to the Jersey right. Shore. But um, <laughs> they grow well yeah, here, yeah. though. They do. Yeah. And, they're and, and, you know, with food crops, we're not there aren't you know, we, uh, we we go through our catalog and make sure there's nothing that's invasive. But, you know, if it's like not local and it's food, like we're, obviously we want people to grow that. Um, so, but, yeah, there, there hasn't been as much for people who are trying to promote like um, uh, local crops yet. And the thing we're really pushing is the pollinators like milkweed. Like we you know, we know a few uh, nonprofits that give out, you know, milkweed seeds and so we're going to try and get get stuff from them and you know make little seed bombs that we'll just put out on our porch and just say hey toss this somewhere gorilla um, gardening seed yeah, bombs yeah. <laughs> you know our library is not going to promote illegal gardening toss it in your own yard i am not speaking yeah i'm not i'm not yeah <laughs> i'm not, not advocating for breaking the law however you did enlighten me that this is a thing that exists i mean but like you gotta think that uh, like birds are gorilla gardening too. I mean, they're mm-hmm. eating berries and then they're, you know, I, ha- my grandmother had a blueberry bush in her yard that was like legit planted from bird poop and that people mm-hmm. might laugh at that, but that's how plants can spread is through bird poop. Yeah. I mean, you can, you can throw a piece of uh, like a piece of fruit or vegetables out your car window and mm-hmm. then it can actually grow in the ground. Like we had, um, our, our friends, like they, um, some teenagers came and kicked open their pumpkin uh, oh, wow. at Halloween <laughs> at Halloween one day, and one of the seeds got into their garden. And then the next year, they had uh, they had pumpkins growing out of their flower garden. And like you know, the the, the things that cause things to grow is just it's it's really really chaotic and random. Um, so, but it shows you, you the know, resiliency of plants and how determined life is to uh, 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 find a way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. But tell tell me a little bit more about you know learning about New Jersey through its food because I know you you know you've been using food as a way to kind of connect to the state that you've adopted as your new home. Yeah, it's been well. So that's been one of the easiest ways to connect because, like you know, um, I, I really only when I got here, I really only knew my wife's uh, family. 
Um, and, it, and, you know, and it's, you know, and I, we had also just gotten married. And when you're like the new in-law, like, you know, you're always like a little bit anxious about impressing them and stuff. And I do not share my uh, parents-in-law's political views uh, in many different ways. But, we all um, have differences, we, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I get along with them very well. Um, but food is really a good place for us to connect. And, you know, her dad is like kind of old school New Jersey Italian. And he like, he's, you know, I kept asking him for recipes and he'd be like, uh, yeah, well, you know, so here, the, here's a list of ingredients. Uh, and I was like, all right, what's the amounts? And he said, well, for that, you got to get in touch with your Italian ancestors. I was like, well, I'm, I'm German. Like I don't have, I don't have the Italian ancestors. And, and but I actually kind of started to get what he meant is like, you learn, you, you know, the way you start making these recipes is by doing it and kind of experimenting with it. And then every time you're like changing the amounts of things to kind of see like what works really well. And so the recipe is almost something that like kind of grows in your brain. And it's this really cool approach to food, which I didn't necessarily have. You know, we always, you know, we always have like a list. This is like, here's the recipe. You got it from a cookbook. You fill it out like this. And like the, the type of cooking that he's kind of him, him and my mother-in-law have kind of shown is like, it's a little bit more creative in that you're kind of learning things over time and getting all these experience and how you like how these, these experiences and how you like make the food. And so that's been a really cool way of like connecting with, um, with my, my new family here. And then there's also just been like using, like with my kids kind of like using food as a way of like connecting with them and like connecting them, like, to New Jersey and through that, you know, it's, it's this kind of cool way of like, I can start building a bit of a network and I feel a little bit less like out on, you know, on my own. Right. Um, yeah. You're, by, yeah. You're, and, and of you're course, creating yeah. roots, literal roots. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's, yeah. Literal roots. Yeah. And that's like, and that's kind of the cool thing is like, you know, obviously like we like going to restaurants. We haven't done it much lately, right. but you know, um, yeah, it is. It is. There's such like a, you know, we used to live in Asbury Park and like a lot of the, uh, the restaurants in Asbury Park have such like a old history there. Um, you know, there's one place called Frank's Deli and it's got like these incredible pork roll, egg and cheese sandwiches. And, you know, pork roll is something that is pretty much just a New Jersey thing. Like you can find it elsewhere in the country, but it's mostly for people who have moved there from New Jersey. Right. And yeah, it's just cool because you kind of start to, and then there, then you, there are all these like different like controversies like within like is it pork roll or is it taylor ham like and you and you have like these debates that you start to like dip into and you can start to like get to know the state a little bit better and like you can really start to determine yeah the geography of a place through its etymology because it's very a north jersey thing to call it taylor ham and then a very south jersey thing to call it pork roll it's almost like a tissue Mm -hmm. is a kleenex it's like oh taylor ham is the brand uh, but pork roll is the product at the end of the day. But it's it's interesting because uh, there's almost a the, the line bleeds of what's North Jersey and what's South Jersey. It bleeds at the Jersey Shore where people try to argue that there's a central Jersey, which both North and South will argue and say, no, there is no central Jersey. But, you know, there's enough people that believe in it. So then it must yeah, be true. Uh- I mean that I am in I am in Central Jersey country, and there and, and I always see the memes that are like we do exist, and then it's like Fort like the governor right now is from uh, he's actually from a, a right nearby me Middletown, and so he's oh, got okay. his staff in charge of his Twitter, and they occasionally tweet out like there is a Central Jersey, and then all the Central Jersey people are like ah it's sanctioned by the government, there it is. but it's like it's, it's yeah I mean you know all these like local arguments that people get into that you really don't you know and you really start getting to it like 
like through its food and through its local culture. And, and which hoagies are the best and what pork roll sandwiches are the best. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, yeah and, well, and, and every single person, and this is a New Jersey and a New York thing. And I'm from Ohio where I've been told that my pizza is terrible. And I, I, I thought our pizza was fine in the Midwest, but here it's like, well, there's something in the water that makes the bagels and the pizza. I don't know why they argue the water and, thing. Cause it's like, I mean, maybe to an extent, but maybe it's like, I, I I, I I don't know. I would really love to have a scientist weigh in on whether or not the water makes that big of a difference. But it truly is just about the history of the region, which me, which is that a lot of Italian Americans came here and yeah. settled here, and you know, brought their cuisines with them, and also spawned off Italian American cuisine, which has become its own distinct regional thing. Uh, so it's just like that's why we have pizza. It's a historical thing, less about the water, more about the people that came here. Yeah, and that and that's it. I find it. I find that specific thing very eerie. So I thought, yeah, it's again. I've been other places. I've had good bagels elsewhere, and I just and I know that there's like a certain like, but even like even in New Jersey, people will start comparing. Like I had one woman recently was like, "Well, these aren't good bagels, but I'm from Brooklyn, so I'm picky." Ooh, it's like, oh, so you have sassy. to be like Brooklyn, yeah. And it's like, and it's but but people have like these different standards for what counts as like real and what isn't, and it's it's a it's almost like and you know this recent. Recently came out uh, the episode for Delistry for WHYY that I did, which I've now been I'm really interested in what's called like a PGI, the protected geographical indications, the mm-hmm. foods that are specifically and at this point, it, uh, within the past like 30 years, the UN had this, um, this meeting and agreement where they've started to delineate specific foods that have cultural significance to the places that they come from. And this is where the whole argument about, oh, champagne can only be called champagne when it comes from the champagne region of France. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of foods now, there are a lot of regions of the world that are now applying to have uh, protected geographical indications for their specific foods, not just because, yes, uh, there might be something in the terroir of the food, there might be something, but there's a strong historical and cultural tie to a place, perhaps its regionality lends to its uh, its quality. Uh, it's a craft from that specific place. And so it's kind of to protect against competitors on the market. Like Champagne, France does not want to compete with uh, bubbly wines in California. Like Champagne, you know, they want it to be called Champagne because it comes from the Champagne region of France. And same with port Mm -hmm. wine. The same goes with certain sausages in Germany, certain cheeses from Switzerland and from and even mm-hmm. also from from France and everything. So it's funny. And oh, oh, Idaho potatoes. Idaho potatoes mm-hmm. is actually a uh, term that is it's like it, so it's like a food having a copyright that it's like an intellectual property of a place. And so that concept is relatively new in the past like 30 years. But it, it but it's kind of funny to hear when people are like, "Oh, the best Philly cheesesteaks are from Philadelphia, but there's a place in Camden, New Jersey, right across the river called Donkeys, which is legit down the street from my house. And like they make a ridiculous cheesesteak sandwich that I yeah, here I here I am. Oh, cheesesteak sandwich. Um they make it's different. It's on a round. Have you been to Donkeys yet? No. Oh my no. goodness. It it's on a round. I did Pats and Gino's, but I haven't done I haven't really been to many of the New Jersey ones. Oh my goodness. Well, yeah. I'm I'm a Philistine. I like I'm from Cincinnati where we have a place called Penn Station cheesesteaks and 
and everyone it, it, it's in there are no Penn stations in Pennsylvania or in Penn Station New York it's just like a Midwest thing but I love them and you tell you tell that to people here and they just they're like go away we're not even right talking they to don't you. even want to yeah. humor it but now there's you know it, people move around the country. I think there was recently an article about California having really good bagels now. And I feel like people get really protective of the the foods that they grew up with, the foods that define their place. It's, it's funny to see people's regional identities become tied to the foods that they eat and the foods that they think are theirs and they have this ownership over it. So it's kind of fun to watch. I mean, I'm excited for like New Jersey designated cranberries or blueberries or something or the oh, tomatoes. Ocean the New Jersey spread tomatoes, should yeah. be a protected geographical <laughs> indication. <laughs> No, I mean, but like, you know, there is, there is, I, I definitely, you know, with cheesesteaks, I think it's a bit much because I know that they use cheese whiz and I know that they're using, it's not like, it's not like homegrown cows. It's not like a cow that was like born in the streets of Philadelphia and right. had a rough and tumble life. It's not, you know, like that's not what's happening, but like stuff that grows in the state, like it does have different distinction. Like there are different things about it. And like, for me feeling like so disconnected from a place, like starting to get a little bit familiar with, you know, like you've taught me a lot about the New Jersey Pine Barrens and just like they were this area that you could grow nothing in. And, you know, and that's why like pine, pine trees apparently only grow in like really depleted soil. Right. Um, and so like, but like the people that went to the Pine Barrens, like figured out how to like make like I guess it's it's, it's mostly cranberries. It's the cranberry it's cranberries and, like, and blueberries is because mm. they love the acidic, porous soil. There's something about the soil that those types of berries thrive in, and the pine needles that fall from the pine trees create a really acidic. Um, fertilizer. So it's this mm. ecosystem that just lends to the success of these types of berries. And that's not to say that, you know, blueberries can't be grown in other places in the nation. I think uh, the nation's largest largest producer of blueberries right now is actually the state of Maine. But there is a distinct difference when you see that Jersey Fresh label on the blueberries <laughs> in the, like it, it's it, it's excitement rings through the produce aisle when there's Jersey Fresh blueberries. And there's a mm. sigh of sadness at the end of the season <laughs> when you read the label and you're like, oh, these blueberries come from California and they're like smaller. Like we have grape sized mm -hmm. blueberries. They're yeah. ridiculous. But yeah, I mean, oh, yeah. I, have to, I have to cut up Jersey Fresh blueberries for my for my son because he's one year old Aww. and I'll choke on them. I mean, he can, he can have all the though. California ones he wants, but Jersey, they're, they're you know, those are good sized <laughs> Healthy blueberries yes. for, yeah. Uh, so tell me a little bit about, you know, uh, cooking with your with your children. I know you had mentioned that you make homemade Play-Doh, um, mm -hmm. which I think is such a cool concept because, yeah, I mean, if they didn't make those kits that made the Play-Doh look like food, uh, sometimes Play-Doh looks very appetizing, even as an adult. <laughs> but, like, yeah. I love the concept of edible Play-Doh. It's, yeah, I mean, well, what I'm making – <laughs> well, what I really basically the pandemic kicked off. We had two kids in our two bedroom apartment. We were feeling super cooped up. And the only thing that made either of us feel sane all day is cooking. So we did what everyone else did. And we started baking bread. And we started like, you know, I, I, I ended up doing like Instagram stories of like trying to make pesto with my two year old. She was two at the time. Oh, and she's fun. like, yeah, yeah, she was. Yeah, she's just ripping up the, the everything and like throwing stems into the blender. And it's just like it took like 
two hours to just get the like the basil picked and then she'd go down for her nap and I'd finish everything in like two seconds. But we realized pretty early on that like her favorite thing to do during the day was to get up on a chair and watch us cook. And, you know, we'd gotten all of this Play-Doh and stuff for her to play with. And and it always dries out because she's a two-year-old. She just leaves it everywhere. So we're finding like, you know, rock hard pieces of Play-Doh on the floor. And then I made bread one day and I had her help me like, like start to like knead the bread. And I realized like, oh, this is infinitely better than Play-Doh. It's just real dough. And I can just like give her bread. And so we would always have like a thing in our fridge of like, I'd make up some dough and then I'd let her punch it for like a while while we were doing, and then I'd, you know, actually form it and like let it rise. But like she ever since, like we got like a little, we got like a little stand that both of them can come up on the counter and watch what we're doing while we're cooking. And like, they want to participate. It's really cool because, you know, even, even the one-year-old like wants to see what's going on. Right. Like he's, he doesn't like when it's only his sister that's able to, to watch, watch what's happening. And it's cool because like with kids, like they are naturally interested in food. Like they're putting everything in their mouths, but like, when I make something with my daughter, like she doesn't make the bread, but I tell her at the end, I give her some of the bread, like, you know, you made this, this is Sophie made this. And she just, and she'll go around and tell people like Sophie and Papa made this bread. And like, and it's, and it's, you just see a little thing where they start to like, something starts to like click in their head and it's really cool. And so that, that especially in the really dark parts of COVID was kind of a lifesaver. And my wife and I, we would switch on and off who got to make dinner each day. And it wasn't, and it used to be like, Oh, uh, can you make dinner? Can you, and this one was like, I want it today. I need this. I need just a few minutes where I'm just like focusing on something. And it became like really kind of a really cool family thing that we've now kind of incorporated into our lives as things start to like open back up again. And even as things begin to open up, is this something that you're going to like hold on to and keep? Because it sounds like it's such a great and engaging activity where you're also connecting with your family. There's no devices. The TV's not on. Maybe some music is playing. Who knows? But, you know, it's a time where you guys can really, really bond and create something together. Yeah. And, and that and that was like something with my daughter, too, is one of the you know, one of the other early covid things is like we don't have a yard. So I was just taking her out into like empty lots and stuff. And I was she wanted to like jump in puddles. I was a little bored. So I got like a couple of apps on my phone, like the iNaturalist one. Oh, and yeah. then the um, uh, there's another one called Merlin Bird ID where you can start to like recognize birds by their songs. And, you know, and and so there's all these kind of ways of like connecting with nature. And it got to a point where one day. Um, I'm sitting out with her and, and she's in, we're, we're on my in-laws back porch and she just goes, Papa, it's a morning dove. And I was just, what? And then I listened and there was a morning dove like singing in the background. Like she'd started oh, to like, she started pick to, up. yeah. Yeah. And because kids, kids just absorb everything. You don't know what they're going to absorb and what they're not. Yeah. But like, you know, by, by really focusing on like food and very local things, like she's getting a connection to her. You know, I, I grew up with woods in my backyard and I just went out and explored and she doesn't have the same because we're in a little bit more densely packed area. Right. And but she is she already knows things about New Jersey where she could connect like certain bird songs to here and to home. And, you know, like my 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 wife grew up on right next to a marsh and there's an osprey nest right next to it. Oh, wow. And like one day I pulled out the app and I was like, oh, this is an osprey sound. And she heard it and she's just like, oh, that's just the sound of my childhood. Aww. Like it's, you know, and you start to. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, 
with 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 things that are very very hyper local like that like local wildlife like food um you know and even just starting to like recognize like you know my daughter kept wandering off into this like patch of grass and i went out there one day with the uh, iNaturalist thing it's like oh this is all poison ivy that's where the rash has been coming from like just knowing that is useful as a parent and I can teach her how to know what it is too. And you know, I had to teach my my mother in law too because she was she was like, oh yeah, she just goes someplace in the grass. It's like it's not grass; it's poison ivy. Um, and it's but, it's crazy how prolific uh, poison ivy is because we literally have some next to our driveway, and it's like how I think of poison ivy as a thing that's super deep woods. But then mm-hmm. I'm in I'm literally right outside of Philadelphia. And it's very dense. It's, you know, New Jersey is one of the most densely populated states. Um, I'm, you know, and I'm saying that second to it's second to D.C., uh, which will Mm -hmm. hopefully soon be a state. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) we'll be then second to D.C. Um, But it's it's a really dense area. But again, it's like. It's I, I was reading, I was like, how did this get right next to my driveway in the little patch of dirt that's next to my driveway? Uh, bird poop. It's like always yep. bird poop. <laughs> yep. Always bird poop. Always bird and that's, poop. And, you know, and the thing is, it's like even with, you know, <laughs> this is turning into just a New Jersey podcast. But like, <laughs> um, you know, New Jersey is called the Garden State for a reason. And, you know, I think it was Ben Franklin said that it was like a barrel that's o- or as a keg that's open at both ends. Oh, wow. It was it was very early on just this breadbasket for New York and for Philadelphia. And, you know, the gardens in New Jersey are because the state has always kind of defined itself by its food. And it is, as you well know an incredibly maligned state like people when the people are talking about jersey they're talking about that strip of highway between like the newark airport and new york because that's the only thing they've ever done is they've gone on the pulaski skyway which is the ugliest structure in the entire world right and but like you know so you know like starting to get to know new jersey and getting out into its nature like you realize this is farmland like this is this is food like this that's what new jersey was for is it was for feeding new york and philadelphia yep um but yeah and 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 also just like the you know the fact that we have such good seafood here um, that's you know, true we have- too yeah the people forget that off of our coast you know i was even thinking about because people fish in the man-made lakes around my uh the area where i live and and for some reason the springtime there's always dead fish that kind of like come up to the shores mm-hmm. that's beside the point i don't know if there someone is dumping something in the lakes or whatever but i was like i wouldn't fish in these lakes but i was thinking about fishing because i used to fish a lot as a kid with my with my family and uh you know the sea bass that we would catch flounder like there's a lot of Mm -hmm. really great flounder there's great crabs you can get like there's oysters there's mussels so so there's a lot of things um that you can get in new jersey that i think would surprise people let's i I live on so i live on the the navisink which goes right up to sandy hook and uh that has a but it has like a lot of oysters and like shellfish that should be growing there. But that actually, I mean, going back to like the climate change thing, apparently there are all these horse farms in like Titten Falls, Colts Neck and all, all these areas, which are like, you know, horse, like Bruce Springsteen's daughter is like an equestrian and they have their horse farm like right up the road from us. But apparently the main thing that causes all these fish kills on these rivers is horse is horse poop. That's like true. there's just an amount of horse poop that's like going. So there is kind of like a, <laughs> it's a double edged sword where it's like, oh, all this amazing farmland. And yeah, like when where there's farmland where you're growing vegetables, growing produce and everything. There's also oftentimes livestock because cows like the 
runoff from some from certain farms can actually be really toxic to certain water supplies, which in this case, it's, you know, runoff from this is a question farm likely going into what used to be where oysters uh, were were growing. Yeah, it it's, you know, the, the I find that like the more I get to know kind of the local area, the more I'm able to like connect with it and just realize the sheer amount of like human activity, the, the amount that our activity actually has, the, the impact that it has on like just local stuff and how much of it is just educating people. Like, you know, we had, um, you know, people will leave their dog poop out and apparently dog poop causes fish kills because it has bacteria in it that really? can get into like, yeah. So just pick up your dog poop and you're actually doing a lot for the environment. Just throw it into the trash. Um, but we actually had a thing in our town where we had to employ, <laughs> poop sniffing dogs who came in from Maine and they actually were able to detect old sewage pipes that had broken because we have very old, you know, New Jersey is an older state. The towns were built before a lot of the new updated technologies. And so we have like these ceramic pipes that would break and they'd like, you know, the only way to find them is to find a dog that knows what it smells like when sewage is leaking into the river. Dang. And so they brought in these dogs that were like trained to find it and they did. Yeah. Oh. Um, yeah. Man, this is yeah. This is this is this has moved away from uh, <laughs> no, from mental kinda, health a little it, bit. It, you know, it's I see this theme of just um, doing little things can mm-hmm. make you feel as though you're in a little bit more control, a little bit more control of your surroundings, a little bit more control of like where your food is coming from, and a little bit more control of uh, you know the end product where it's like oh the meal and it's like it's these little decisions and little things that seem to uh, make larger impacts at the end of the day, whether it's eco- like whether it's for climate change or whether it's getting dinner on the table. Yeah, I mean, and you know, so much of of things for me, like with with depression for me was so much of it was about being disconnected from a lot of things. I didn't have a worldview that really lent itself to to being in a place like like before before I, you know, I I met my wife in London. And in London, the history is just there for you to find. Like you walk down the street and they're like, this is where the this is this is supposedly where Sweeney Todd was. This is where Jack, I lived in a building that Jack the Ripper's victims slept in. Oh, wow. Like, you know, yeah. I mean, yeah, it was, it was a hundred percent haunted, but I I didn't come across any ghosts, ghosts, but, um, but like, you know, you go through like places like that and you'd find things everywhere. And part of the reason I was a travel writer is I liked going into these cities and like exploring. And what you realize is that that type of history exists everywhere you go, but with certain places, you need to do a lot more work to find it. Um, and New Jersey is a place that I think doesn't try to make itself like easy to love. It's not like, you know, the Jersey shore has got its, its tourists, but they hate the tourists there. They call it's either it's Benny's. If you're, um, Benny's, if you're in North, what's it? Shoebies in the South, I think is what they call the tourists. Benny's was Brooklyn, Elizabethtown, like it actually stands for something. Yeah, uh, Brooklyn, Elizabeth, Newark, and New York. Yes, yes. Yeah, and then Shoebies was something about the shoe boxes that they would have their lunch in. Yes. Um, <laughs> but yeah, but like it's it's like they've got like, but you know, New Jersey isn't trying to make you love it. You kind of like need to really explore it. And and I also grew up in a in a similar place. I grew up in Cincinnati, which I don't feel like 
uh, I had a hard time connecting with as a kid. And I always had these like dreams of just getting out of there. And I used to listen to Bruce Springsteen to like, be like, that was the thing is like, and you know, he wrote all these songs about getting out of this, this crap hometown. And then of course I end up living literally in Bruce Springsteen's crap hometown. <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, but like, you know, trying to like, you know, food has been just such a really central way of like connecting to place and a really like, good way of starting to get to know kind of like the details and nuances and history and even like the geography of the area that I've been living in. And so between that and all of like kind of the mental health benefits of just doing basic cooking stuff, um, it's, it's, it's been one of the more fundamental ways that I've been able to kind of like lift out a little bit of depression to the point where like when COVID hit, I already had a lot of the tools because I'd basically been living the COVID life by working from home and being very isolated for, for years. And so when COVID hit, I actually, I wrote a, uh, I wrote an article for our library and I think I actually said it, I need to go back and check, but I think I said, you're going to want to get into bread baking. That's a good idea. You're going to want to drink every night. That's a bad idea. And like, kind of like, you know, and kind of go through like what people would do. And it's been, if, if I hadn't kind of gone through that five years ago, COVID would have been awful for me. So it's, you know, in, in food, it's just it's just such a central part of your life, and when you really start to engage with it, then you know it. Yeah, it, it's just really rewarding. Thank you so much, Matt, for sharing your experiences and perspectives with us. And now I'm going to go read more about this gorilla gardening. Amuse Bouche is hosted by yours truly, Kehlani Palmasano. The music at the beginning and the end of this podcast is by the Great North Sound Society. And the song is appropriately titled South Street Strut. A little nod to my Philly folks out there. At the moment, I'm working as a one-woman band, producing, editing, and bringing these amazing food stories to your ears. So if you like what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast, and also subscribe to the Amuse-Bouche newsletter on Substack, where every week I share even more food stories and recipes meant to delight and amuse. It's a free newsletter at the moment, but I do accept tips, so consider helping a sister out by throwing her a few bucks a month. If not, you can support me by liking, commenting, and sharing my work. You can also follow me personally at Kehlani Says on Twitter and Instagram. And if you'd like to be a guest on a future episode of Amuse Bouche, feel free to slide into my DMs or just hit me up on Substack.